0: Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Our theme for this April 2017 episode is Ancestors in the Great War. We'll start with the genealogy blogosphere, where editor Diane Haddad will share six records to trace ancestors who served in World War One. In our top tip segment, we'll discuss identifying photographs from the World War I era using the fashions of the day with Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. Then in our 101 Best Website segment, we'll visit the American Battle Monuments Commission website with David Frixell. And Sonny Morton is here to talk about resolving conflicts in your research. And then we'll wrap things up at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the news from the blogosphere with Diane Haddad. It's sad to think about the fact that more than 80% of U.S. Army service records for those discharged between November 1st of 1912 and January 1st of 1960, which of course includes World War I soldiers, that those were destroyed in a 1973 fire at the National Archives National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis. But the good news is that Family Tree Magazine editor Diane Haddad is here to share six different record types that are available to help you trace your ancestors' World War One service. Hi Diane.
1: Hello. Yes, there are um, substitute sources that people can use in place of the World War I and other 20th century military records that were lost. Um, it's, I mean, 80% is not 100%, so it's still worth requesting to see if your ancestor's record exists or has been recreated by the National Archives. But we're going to talk about six different records that likely do exist. Wonderful. Um, yes, for finding out about World War One service. So in this post, I put a couple pictures that my mom recently sent me of some of my World War One relatives. So they're in uniform, so I just thought they were really cool. So I wanted to put them in the post. They are. (laughs) Uh, So the first one is draft registration cards, which almost, you know, every man of a certain age who lived in the United States had to register for the draft at that time. And not all of them served, but that has um, great basic information about address, employer. Um, Some of them have the nearest relative to contact in case of an emergency. basic appearance information. So um, those are always really interesting and widely available. The state and general rosters are books created by many states that list um, basic service information about World War I soldiers in that state. And I didn't put this in the post, but the one that I show um, from Ohio, it's actually on Google. So it's free to access. It's also in a lot of other digitized genealogy book collections because it's a government publication. So you don't have the copyright issues. Um, Ancestry has it too. Or you can go to the library and it tells basic information like when the person enlisted and the different ranks that they had and when they were discharged.
0: Oh, those are great records. And I see that there's transport service records what are these
1: yeah this is a recently published collection on fold three and it is basically passenger lists of troop ships that took your um, relatives overseas and back and um it's not quite as informative as an immigration passenger list. It has the soldier's name and their um, like ID number and their rank and the company that they're in and then a the nearest contact. And I had to scroll through to find the page that said where they were all going. Um, so I found three different listings for um, Norbert, who was one of my relatives I had the picture of. And then discharge papers also could be very interesting. A lot of soldiers would get home and they would go register with their courthouse and say, I'm here. I don't think mine did because I couldn't find theirs. But just to show an example, I put another person in the post.
0: Yeah, these are and what's really neat is you've got examples that you can see the pictures of these records that she's talking about. So you can kind of see what you're going to get. And there's two more here. I see veteran surveys and military headstone applications. I don't know that I've heard of that.
1: Yeah. So the veteran surveys, a lot of um, historical societies or the state, um, like Department of Defense type agency would send surveys to the service people from World War I when they had returned and just ask for basic service information just to kind of preserve that information. And the one that I have was digitized on the local library website. So that was easy to find. And then the military headstone application, um, you could find this for, I think, World War II also. But when the veteran passed away, then someone could apply to have a military headstone so I have this application that shows his name and his rank. So basic service information and then where they're buried.
0: Wow. Well, for having World War One. I- Era ancestors, you dug up a lot of stuff (laughs) considering how much was lost. It's exciting to see that there are so many other avenues, very creative ways to find more information. This is terrific. You can check out uh Diane's post. It's called Six Records to Trace Ancestors Who Served in World War One. And we'll have a link in the show notes. Wonderful stuff. Thank you so much, Diane. You're welcome. Top tip segment, I've invited the photo detective Maureen Taylor back to the show to talk a bit of fashion. Hi Maureen. Hey Lisa. You know, Maureen, we were we are all so fortunate to have photographs from the early of the 20th century and such thorough documentation of World War One. And of course, what we often notice first when we're looking at photos is what they are wearing, which is so unique to the time. <laughs> what are some of the fashion Things that, you know, the indicators that we should be looking at that say, ah, that's a World War I era photo.
2: Well, you know, there's this real explosion in family photography right after 1900. And so World War One sort of gets swept up in that. And there's a lot of pictures because more people had cameras. Right. And so how are you going to be able to tell if this is a picture from 1915 or one from 1925 or 1905, mm-hmm. right? What's the difference? So World War I and that really short period, 1914 to 1918, if you're in Europe here, it's a little shorter, it really changes the way we dress. And so many of the things that are part of our contemporary wardrobes didn't exist before World War I. So imagine you're living in a time period where women are covered from head to toe from shoulder to wrist,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Then the war comes along. And suddenly, it's, it appears. It comes along pretty gradually. First, you start seeing the skirts sort of creep up to the ankles and then over the ankles and then up to the calves. And women are still, for the most part, trying to cover themselves so they wear dark stockings and they wear high boots and and things like that. But then, then women start wearing light-colored stockings and... Women didn't shave their legs, so they had to start shaving their legs. Right. And you get new, new products because women are suddenly showing their legs. And so the military actually influences men and women's clothing. So trench coats are really from World War I, but they move in to our everyday lives, and you can still buy trench coats today. Wristwatches, a practical new accessory in World War I uh, was a safety issue for men in the trenches. Right. Uh, and then you get things like makeup. Suddenly more women are wearing makeup the, the further into that the 19-teens you get. And by 1920, there's an awful lot of women wearing that smoky eye you see on those shows today. And then by the 1920s, everything is a very drop-waisted, shorter, even shorter skirt. I just love the World War One period. This is, I mean, not because of the war, but because of the changes in the way our ancestors lived and moved and and dressed. And so, when you're looking at the the photos, you can actually see that hemline move up until you get to the mini skirts of the 1970s.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and I. Imagine also that at the same time frame, we're getting into the silent films, we're getting films and theaters and places where large numbers of people can go and get exposed to these new fashions so much more rapidly, I would imagine. And is that where kind of the makeup thing comes from?
2: Yes. So the movies influence how people dressed, but it also influenced the makeup, because the makeup in those black and white early films had to be pretty heavily done so that you could see them, um, see the eyes. So you get a lot of that, that smoky eye with the heavy eyeliner and the heavy shadow. Uh, and then women go to the movies and they see it and then they imitate it at home or they see the latest fashions and it's, it's across the country very quickly. And so women and men are influenced by what the film stars, the glamorous film stars are wearing in the films.
0: Exactly. And I know you've got an article that's coming up in the May-June issue, I believe, of Family Tree Magazine. And uh, there's a lot of fabulous example photos that you have here. One of them that kind of uh, stands out to me, because I've seen this in, in photos in my family, is that Navy look. Is that also World War I inspired?
2: Yes. So you're talking about the woman with the nautical yes. uh, thing on her sleeve. She was actually, I believe, uh, a woman called a yard arm. And so there were women who filled in for men in sort of civil service jobs having to do with military. And so they would free up the men to go serve in the army or the Navy. And then they would work and they had a little uniform, a little uniform with that. She's actually a yeoman.
0: Mm, Okay. And I imagine too, we are
2: doing away with the corset
0: around this time.
2: Yes. I mean, do you want me to talk about women's undergarments, Lisa? (laughs) Well,
0: I tell you, what an influence it had on the silhouette, right? Oh, yeah. the where the waistline was and how form-fitting things were. It's amazing how uh, I was thinking about this even when Britney Spears came out and had all the low-waisted jeans. And it actually started kind of changing girls' figures because of where the waistline is hitting and what's getting pinched and what's not getting pinched. And that was happening at this time as well.
2: Right So you have this really funny little fashion that happens about 1914, the really, really narrow pencil skirt um, that, women, that comes up really high, above, way above a woman's waist. And so you sort of shuffled along in this skirt. And then in two years' time, the skirts are very wide to enable women to walk more. And so not only is the waistline more comfortable, but the undergarments are more comfortable. You're not having that, you know, laced into your undergarment thing going on.
0: Right. And are men as distinctive in their changes in the fashions as the women are?
2: Not as. I mean, the suits become, the jackets become very narrow fitting, pants legs are narrow, and you you get a wide variety of celluloid collars, which look really uncomfortable. They come up way under the chin you know so the the men have to keep their heads up think of it as like wearing a one of those collars when you have a car accident yeah <laughs> you have a celluloid collar holding your head up um so they were very uncomfortable um and you bought them by the box
0: right so did they just toss those i always wondered about that were they washing them or were they tossing them
2: i think they tossed them after so many wears
0: it. right um i'm curious too i know one of the questions that comes up in my own collection is you you look at a picture and it might be kind of World War I era dress, but how long might they have hung on to clothing? You know, could you be looking at a 1925, but really they're still staying there in a 1915 dress? Or did people, you know, at least for pictures, get in the most
2: current garb? You know, it depends. Because again, we have got this huge shift from being completely covered up to being not. Mm -hmm. you know, with a V-neck and the, the sailor type blouses where you're open at the neckline and you've got those shorter skirts. So if you're an older woman who's very conservative, you might continue to wear older fashion. And in fact, we have photographs in my family of my grandmother as a young woman standing with her mother. And we know what the date of the picture is. And my Grandmother is a young woman, and she's wearing pretty typical young woman's clothes. In other words, her skirt is short.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Her mother looks like she's wearing a dress from 1900.
0: That's a great strategy is kind of look to the younger people in the image, because they're more likely to be in the more current
2: dated items. Not always, but often. Yeah. Sometimes you get older women. Now, hair in this World War I period, I think it's hysterical. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> to, to it's, hysteric. it is. it's hysterical for men and women. So for women, you piled all your hair up on the top of your head, and it came forward on your forehead. Mm-hmm. And so you had, a, instead of a bun on the back of your head, your bun was on the front of your head.
0: Kind of like this gal with the, the nautical outfit.
2: Exactly. Yes. So when you get the magazine, take a look at that. And then for men, I've seen this uh, resurgence of sort of World War I men's haircuts. Wherever I go, I see these young men. And I, I just went and there was this um, guy you know who, who I saw. And I said, oh, I said, you've got the latest hairstyle. I said, he said, yes, it's the, it's the most current style. And I said, well, that's great. I said, but it's really current to World War One." Yeah. <laughs> That and he laughed. He said, "That's not true." And I said, "It is true. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can trust me on this. It's very—they're uh, shaved on the sides mm-hmm. and very high on the top. Lots of fullness on the top of men's heads. Watch next time you go somewhere like a mall. Look at all the young men and look at their hairstyles.
0: Right.
2: It's very much World War One all over again. And thank goodness we've left the man buns of the 1850s behind us." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, this is awesome. Well, the article is terrific and it's going to be again like I say in the I believe in the May June issue of the magazine and it's a wonderful way to kind of help you date some of those photos that you have from the World War 1 era. Maureen, it's always fun to talk fashion and hairstyles with you. Thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thank you, Lisa.
0: In this episode's 101 best websites segment, I've invited Dave Brickell back to the show to talk about the American Battle Monuments Commission website. Welcome back, Dave.
3: Thanks. Nice to be here.
0: I know that this uh, American Battle Monuments Commission is in the military category in the list. I'm not that familiar with it. Tell us about it. It certainly fits into our World War One theme.
3: It does well it's an interesting um, and you know very meaningful uh, website if you have ancestors who served overseas in World War one or or other wars uh, and it basically the commission it gives the site its name manages twenty four overseas military cemeteries plus twenty six other memorials, monuments, and markers At, From the genealogy standpoint, the nice thing is that the search page you can click to search the records of those people who are buried in all, all of those cemeteries in terms of world war 1 on their search page you can actually click to search just the almost 34,000 us military specifically from world war 1 that are buried in overseas cemeteries or listed on the walls of missing so it's not limited to World War I. In fact, last year um, we went to uh, the cemeteries at Normandy, which was a very moving experience, mm-hmm. and we used it to check to see if one of my uh, wife's ancestors was buried there. He wasn't before we went. So it's, re- it's really it's a very handy um, thing that if you're going to be able to visit one of these cemeteries, you can easily, with just a few clicks, um, check and uh, you know, see if they're buried there.
0: Well, that's great. What a wonderful resource. And actually, I know that you have another resource for us that I think fits right in here. I'd love to talk about it. It's your article um, in the trenches. And that's in the April uh, issue of Family Tree Magazine. And there you've got several other websites. I'd love to have you share some of those with us as well.
3: Yeah. And a lot of these are also on the 101 best uh, websites list. And it's a pretty the sort of Pegged the article is that it was 100 years ago this year that the U.S. entered World War I. Right. Um, so, for example, there's sort of a domestic counterpart to the American Battle Monuments Commission. It's called the Nationwide Grave Site Locator. It's a site from the Veterans Administration. And so if your World War I veteran is buried in a stateside cemetery, then this would be the place to look. So you can think of it as domestic and foreign in terms of the burial places. Mm-hmm. So this one works very similarly. It It covers people who are buried in... VA national cemeteries, state veteran cemeteries, other military and Department of Interior cemeteries, and even private cemeteries where the grave has a government marker. So it's very thorough in, uh, in that way. So, you know, it's worth checking both of those sites to, uh, you know, see what you might be able to learn.
0: Right. And tell us Otherwise, the name of that one again.
3: It's, the, uh, it's from the Veterans Administration. It's called the Nationwide Grave Site Locator. Great. Now, the trouble with World War I records is, of course, that a lot of them were destroyed in the fire at the National Personal Records Center in St. Louis. Right. And so, you know, huge swaths of that information, you know, are simply lost. They're not online. They're not anywhere. They're not even at the National Archives. Um, but, you know, as we note in the article, there are um, other ways around that. One of them is that there are a lot of state records. And so those, you know, were were preserved. And... You can find a lot of those at individual state websites. So a lot of the websites that you know we talk about as being really good state websites happen to include uh, World War I information. Mm-hmm. And you can also find a lot of those on two of our 101 Best Websites subscription sites, uh, Ancestry and Fold3. Fold3, of course, specializes in military records, so it's not surprising and they have not only a lot of those state records, they have some pension records from World War One and a wide variety of I don't know, what you sort of think of as miscellaneous um records. You know, they have, you know, Connecticut World War One service rosters, they have National World War One Museum portrait photographs, um, naturalization indexes for uh World War One soldiers who like they got naturalized as citizens because of their service, um, officer report registers, uh, things called Navy cruise books, which start in 1918, which I best, best described as like high school yearbooks, but for ships. So right. they're very cool. You, see, you know, you see you have the pictures of the guys and all this sort of thing. And since they start in 1918, they just barely catch the tip of, you know, service in the war. The um, whole three has registers of officers in the U.S. Army, Generally, if you're looking for officers, you have better luck than if you uh, are looking for enlisted men. But it's it's kind of um, hit or miss on you know both of these. Whether you're looking at Fold three or ancestry or at individual state sites, um, it sort of depends on what state they were from, what where they served. Um, but at least you're you know it, just because the federal records burned up doesn't mean you should give up. There's there's a, still a lot of stuff out there that you can you know, that you can learn.
0: Exactly. And this article in the trenches, boy, it just gives you so many different avenues to kind of help fill in the gaps. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate it.
3: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Do you have a bit of conflict in your family tree? Perhaps two family stories seem to contradict each other? Or do you have two documents that just don't add up? In today's Family Tree Crash Course segment, I've invited Sunny Morton, the instructor of the Resolving Conflicts in Your Family Tree course, to share some strategies for bringing peace to the
4: family. Welcome (laughs) back, my friend. Thank you. At least peace to the family tree. Maybe
1: not not entirely (laughs) the family. How are you? Not a
0: miracle worker, huh? (laughs) I'm doing good. And I'm, I think this class is something that gosh, everybody needs, we all run into stuff that you look at two things, and you go, that doesn't add up, you know, there's, there's a problem here. But I'm really interested to know, you spend the entire first lesson, just breaking down the difference between original derivative, and authored sources. And why is that? Why is that so critical?
4: Well, I have to say that when they asked me to write a class about analyzing genealogical evidence, um, I'm like, well, isn't that pretty obvious? Isn't it all just common sense? And I really had to go back and break it down. What is it that I do when I'm finding records, when I'm exploring what they have, when I'm comparing things? I, I really broke it down and I realized, you know, maybe it's worth talking about this because... What we're going to, every time we're getting information, we're going to some kind of source. And that source has a value. It has a story behind it. And, if, um, and the format that that source takes can also have tremendous um, implications for how we understand it. So you mentioned those three formats, the original, the derivative, and the authored source. So it sounds very scholarly. I'll break it down. <laughs> so an original source is going to be that diary. And holding it in your hand, it's the old paper, it's the thing. Another type of original source might be a family history interview that you do with somebody. The interview, um, the original source that you have from that is going to be that old cassette tape that you created in 1989 with that original interview on it. Um, Let's say now a derivative version of that um, cassette tape recording would might be your transcription of it. A derivative means another version of it that somebody's made for whatever reason. So an index, a transcript, an abstract, a copy that you might change a little bit. So all of those would be derivative sources. Um, And then the third kind of source that they mentioned would be an authored source. And that would be somebody's brainchild. They've taken all of these other old original or derivative sources, and they've put them all together and come up with a thought. So they've written a biography based on these seven different sources, and they've they've put their own thinking and analysis into it, and that's so you're, you have an author whose brain is at work there interpreting all of these other sources, and so that's an authored source. So you could see how each of those would have tremendous value, can't you? You can think of lots of contexts in which you would want to have those formats.
0: Absolutely, but what you're really describing is that not all sources are created equal, you know, they're, they have different, different weights. And, and you talk about that basic yeah, difference between primary and secondary source, right? I mean, and that's something yeah. that I think, particularly when you're fairly new to research,
4: uh, you know, it all looks like all apples, but it's apples and oranges and lemons and everything else. Well, and that's when you particularly get into the information. Is that information contained inside that source? Is it primary information, meaning is it being reported by somebody who's a first-hand witness or is that information secondary? And what can be confusing is that the same source might have both primary and secondary information. If you think of a death certificate, the primary information that's being provided um, is going to be maybe that medical cause of death. That's primary information being provided by the doctor and the date of death. That's all firsthand evidence. That's what's being reported right then. But the informant on the death certificate, the next of kin, may also be asked to report that the deceased's birth date and the parents' names, and that's going to be secondhand. Unless that person was there for that person's birth, so that that those two kinds of information might all be in the same source. So it does get a little nitpicky, but once you think through it a little bit, and that's what that chapter really helps you do is think through it, look at examples, and then think to yourself, oh, you know, each of these sources would have some value. I would love to get a copy of that original cassette tape with my great aunt Lena and uh, talking and hear her voice and hear the inflection of what's being said, but maybe I don't have time to sit and listen to it at all, or maybe the quality of the recording is not that good. So I'm really glad my mom made a transcript, and that's that derivative source. I'm going to go back and consult for ease and convenience, and um, because maybe that's the better quality now. But then maybe my cousin wrote a great biography based on Aunt Lena's interview, plus several other census records and obituaries and things. And so that authored source can really help me in other ways, because somebody else has done a bunch of work to put things together. So you see you go to them for different things. But when you evaluate what's in them, you're also going to remember, well, you know what, this is a transcript and they may have heard that word wrong. Right? Right. And going
0: back to this idea of then resolving conflicts, when right. we see a conflict, we what you're really saying then is to look at the type of source it is, and to understand uh, that perhaps this one doesn't carry maybe as much weight, maybe I should look for something that's more solid that really we can rely on. We can kind of hang our like you were saying the a death certificate, if that's written out by the doctor, it's at the time that it happened. Boy, he should know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's some statements that we can really take as pretty much accurate in terms of his cause of death because he's sitting right there with the patient versus
4: grandma talking about it a decade later, right. Yeah. And so you're gonna get varying levels of expertise but also the time period when it's reported, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And again, when you're looking at that death certificate, um if you know, the the old man's daughter reported his birth information and she said he was born on a certain day, but then you go back and look at his World War One draft registration and he says he was born on a different day, which are you gonna be more likely to believe? The one that's right. closer in time. Right, and that's reported by himself. Now, clearly, he was he doesn't remember his own birth. So it would be even better if we found his mom, <laughs> yeah. right? Writing, writing something down, reporting that, and it, like a um, find the birth certificate that's created at the time, or find the church baptismal record that was made three days after he was born. Something like that would be even better. But as you're evaluating these conflicts, you really want to, you know, take a hard look at how you know what you think you know. Absolutely,
0: and you talk in lesson two about the stories behind the record types. That does that just take it another step then of
4: understanding these records? It does, and sometimes it just it helps you better understand the story. If you're looking at you're looking at a court case, for example, or you're looking at a divorce, and you're trying to uh, figure out whether to believe what's being said, thinking about the fact that this person is trying to prove something or trying to avoid something if they're trying to um, avoid having to make a payment, or if they're trying to preserve their reputation, or if they're trying to get revenge on someone, you know, all of that is going to go into a court case. And that person's testimony might be reported a certain way, the way the newspaper reports it might be a little different. And so thinking about the story and the purpose of each record, the newspaper reporter just wants to sell papers, right? Exactly. <laughs> they, they want a good story. And so they don't necessarily, um, they're not necessarily going to honor what's being said or the intent behind what's being said or try to really get to the truth when they're reporting that sensational story. So and then another example of a kind of a record that's got a backstory that could lead you genealogically to other records would be like a delayed birth record. So we often find these beginning in the 1930s or so for people who had been born clear back into the late 1800s. Um, Because nobody really had ever needed to prove their births before. Um, It just wasn't something on their radar. And I think it's one of the reasons that a lot of people are inconsistent in old records about when they were born. They didn't really know. It wasn't really that important to know. And um, so nobody really made a big deal out of it. But then suddenly there was Social Security. Mm Mm-hmm. And suddenly, in the 1930s, everybody wanted to qualify and sign up for potential social security benefits. In order to do that, you had to have some sort of proof of when you were born and where you were born. So, hence, you have people saying panicking saying oh no i never had a birth certificate made or the the you know they didn't do that when i was born or the courthouse burned down and took all those records with us so i need some sort of proof of who i am and of my origins and so you start to see these delayed birth records being recorded often as court records in particular counties or cities. And so if you can't find a birth record in the birth certificates um, indexes and databases or, or from the, the state office or the county office, wherever you're going, you might also know to look for delayed birth records. Um, if you find somebody listed in a Social Security death index or something like that, you start to understand, wait a minute. So they have, would have had to have proof if they registered for Social Security. There was some kind of proof of when they were born. So you just go look for it, see if there's a delayed birth record that was recorded somewhere in those county court records. Again, you might have to look for those separately, but that's also a good place to find family members witnessing an older sister witnessing somebody's birth. That's how I identified somebody's parents was one time was by finding her listed as the witness in her brother's birth record. That's how I connected her to the family. Ah, Because she gave her maiden name and said, I was there. I'm the older sister. This is my maiden name. This is my married name. And this is, you know, they're my parents and they're his parents. So, you know, those understanding that there are different kinds of records that may have been created can lead you along a great path.
0: And and this just reveals so much about the conflict that you're faced with is yes. uh, knowing the story behind it, understanding the type of records, the motivations, uh, so much more to consider. And you really cover it all in this resolving conflicts class. Um I know everybody listening along with me has been just fascinated because it really makes you want to go back and take that second look at some of the conclusions that we've come to. And uh, looking at the records more closely. If, if you're interested in this course, uh, it's at Family Tree University, I'll have a link in the show notes for you. And Sunny, thank you so much for sharing so many of the great strategies and know how behind the scenes of this wonderful class. Thank you. Absolutely. It's time to wrap up this episode, which has been devoted to our ancestors in the Great War. And we're going to do that over at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Allison. You, you know, there was a huge loss of World War One military records, of course, in 1973. And we have managed to uncover a lot of alternatives in this episode. And I'd be very interested to know, do you have any other resources for us that can kind of help us get around this problem?
5: Absolutely, Lisa. Um, As you mentioned, that big fire at the National Personnel Records Center destroyed a lot of the service records um, from World War I. And so I think that becomes a brick wall for many researchers who are looking for their family's experiences. And so the product that came to mind for me um, as a good resource for dealing with this problem and other problems like it is a video called Sidestep Your Brick Wall Using Indirect Evidence. And so this gives you an alternative method around record losses like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, we might have some folks who are pretty new to genealogy listening. Cover a little bit for us. What, what do you mean by indirect evidence?
5: Yeah, that's a great question, Lisa. So when we do genealogy, we're often looking for direct evidence. So you're looking for, say, that birth certificate that specifically says this was great grandma's birth date or even a census record that says this is where my family lived in this year and um, providing the direct answer to your genealogical questions, the date, the name, other data about your ancestors. Well, sometimes those direct answers aren't always available. You could look at lots of records and never, ever find a direct answer to your question. And so that's when, as a genealogist, you have to get creative and start looking for indirect evidence, which is sort of an absence of a direct answer that points you to the direct answer.
0: Yeah, and that's a direct way of saying (laughs) what a really indirect way of doing this. It's um, kind of a think outside the box kind of a thing. But sometimes, you know, that's what you have to deal with. And I, I know Joshua Taylor does this, this video, and he does a great job of kind of explaining that.
5: Absolutely. So another good way to think about it is, um, you know, there might not be a birth certificate because your ancestor was born before um, births and deaths started getting recorded. So that doesn't mean that the event didn't happen. It just means that you have to think outside the box and look for um, other records or the absence of records that would tell you that this probably happened at this time. Josh walks sort of through a five step process of gathering and analyzing indirect evidence. And that's the whole gist of this video that he'll walk you through and give some really solid examples, um, not specifically from World War One, but they're applicable to any research situation.
0: Yeah, and and certainly, all of what we've been talking about today, even though we have been focused on World War One, it really is just addressing the bigger question of the brick wall, and kind of finding those ways around it this video that Allison's talking about is available over at shopfamilytree.com. And it's great. You know, Joshua is a terrific presenter. And, and this is going to be a power 30 minutes for you to kind of get lots of new strategies to apply to World War One ancestors, as well as others across your family tree. Great idea. Thank you so much, Allison. We'll talk to you next month. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this April 2017 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Head on over to familytreemagazinecom slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode from April 2017. Those will include our top tips and links to all the websites that we mentioned. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, The Genealogy Gems Podcast, which is also available for free through iTunes. And we have an app for that. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.